Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What is the purpose of campus ministry? What do we hope for our youth? What do we expect of them as they enter adulthood? In a contemporary setting, where campus ministry tends to emphasize social issues, religious identity, and topical theology, how can teachers engage college students with the serious study of the Bible? In this week's episode, Richard talks about a recent experience he had working through Hosea chapter 6 on campus at the University of Minnesota. You will not be surprised to hear that in just 15 minutes, Richard had his students reading the Bible, taking notes, and doing exegesis. His method is not complicated, but unlike popular approaches to campus ministry, it does, in fact, require effort. You're listening to the Bible as literature. And this is Dr. Richard Benson. And you are listening to episode 37 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, we are coming together just off the heels of a presentation that Dr. Benton gave to the Orthodox Christian Fellowship at the University of Minnesota. You were talking about Hosea chapter 6, I believe. Is that correct? One of the things I've found dealing with OCF programs and other educational venues targeting college students or even young adults in high school is that there tends to be an emphasis on thematic discussion. First of all, someone always wants to make it relevant, which is problematic right out of the gate because data is data, whether it's relevant or not is immaterial. But they tend to talk about social issues or theological topics or questions of religion and denomination and identity, those types of questions. Moral issues. Moral issues. And it tends to be a big love fest about what the right opinion to have is. Very rarely have I seen any of those discussions sink their teeth in to the primary material. And what's interesting about the primary material, which of course is scripture, is that once you sink your teeth into it, it undermines all of those topics and discussions. It makes it very difficult to even have an opinion about those areas without first looking more closely at your own culpability and so forth. But anyways, after spending three years of absolute immersion in the study of the Bible and what it means and how it is the basis for everything, I remember coming out of seminary and thinking, my knowledge of the faith today is rudimentary compared to what the average Christian's knowledge in the first century would have been of Scripture. I actually left seminary feeling ashamed that I had to go to graduate school to get a basic introductory knowledge. To me, when we talk about OCF, it breaks my heart. So talk about how what you did was different Mm -hmm. this time around. We've been involved, my wife and I, in, in this for a while, in this kind of ministry. And one of the things that I've always insisted on was that Bible study be a part of it because this is the basis of everything. And that's what I told the group just this last week, that if you don't understand the Bible, 
you don't understand Christianity. And this comes from a, a personal experience of mine. When I was in my early 20s and I was trying to understand Paul, Paul was just long essays that all kind of sounded the same and they were all kind of talking about Jesus and I didn't really understand. So what I did is I, I got a notebook and I read through the chapters one by one and just wrote out a one-sentence summary of each chapter. You didn't pick up the Bible and say, what does the Bible say about this or that issue? Or what does the Bible say about this topic? Or how can I talk about this topic and use the Bible? You brought nothing to the text. As a young man, you sat down and said, look, let's see what this guy Paul is saying. Exactly. What is Paul saying? That's what I wanted to know. And so I did that. And I sometimes would have to break up a chapter into more than one section. So by the end of Romans, you know, I ended up with 20 sentences that summarize the book of Romans in my own terms. And then I went through all of them, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, all the way through. And by the end, I said to myself, how did I ever call myself a Christian I didn't even know what Christianity was about because I didn't even know what Paul was trying to say before that. And it took studying it and going through it, just reading and trying to comprehend it, really just that simply. There was no test. There was no essay I had to write. And I understood that this was such an entry into knowledge that I always make this a part of teaching college kids who are about the same age as I was back then. So whether it's a secular classroom or an OCF, you need to have the skills to be able to read the Bible on your own. People say, we need to read in the context of the church. But here's the thing. The church developed among illiterate people. Only a certain class, a very small class of people, could actually read. Now, I'm dealing with college students who all know how to read. You are comparing yourself to the first century Christian. The first century Christian had knowledge of scripture that we don't even have, and they were illiterate. Now that we can have a room full of Bibles for free at the place we're having the OCF, there are more Bibles around than we had people. Everyone could just grab one and then leave it. No one's going to steal it because it's not worth stealing. I think it's important at this point for our listeners to understand what you mean when you say that there were illiterate people who were well-versed in Scripture. What that means is that people would gather in groups to hear Scripture read aloud. And they wouldn't just read a section here or a section there the way we do today with the lectionary as we've inherited it, where you hear just snippets on the weekends. Or I mean, these folks would get together and they would listen to Scripture from cover to cover. And they would memorize it. And they would memorize it. So it wasn't that they were illiterate as an educated. You mean illiterate in a very specific way that they themselves couldn't read, but they could hear and understand. They could hear and memorize. And memorize. They, would they could recall texts. And the thing is, I know this is the case. Because when I was in Greece, and I was in Thessaloniki, and I went to the monastery, and I would go to Vespers, I would see women walking to and from the service reciting the Psalms. Now, they very well may be literate, but the thing is, the Bible is written in a dialect that's not anywhere near what they speak on an everyday basis, yet they know. Right. I wonder how many people we call readers in the churches can get up and read and recite from memory the Hex of Psalmos and the Orthros service. That's only six psalms. I mean, I was also Mount Athos, and by the time you're in your 50s, you have the entire Psalter memorized. If there is a function of liturgy, this is its function. 
to safeguard the memorization of sacred texts. I mean, the fragments and the verses that we call Traparia and Kentucky and so forth, these were not the main part of the services. The main part of the services were primarily the Psalter and then lengthy readings from the Older Testament. And these hymns were sort of like ornaments that you decorate the meat of the service with. Mm-hmm. What happened over time is people got lazy and shrunk the amount of scripture you would hear during the services so that now you come and listen to the antiphons done in five minutes. And you've got three songs lines of the entire Psalter. And then people complain there's no place to sit during the Psalms. What Psalms? Anyways, I could go on about this. I think the point isn't that we should have longer services. As Paul says, we don't need longer services, God forbid. What we need is people to avail themselves of the advantages they have today. The only way you're going to learn how to figure out the Bible is by reading it and trying to figure it out. That is the only way. I do this with adults. I do this with college students. I do it with graduate students. But I also do it with high school students. And so what I told the students at OCF is I said I would hate to insult the Bible by saying that it takes less effort or you should be spending less time on it than you would on your anthropology textbook. Why would you do that? You read the anthropology textbook so you can do well on an exam so that you might get a better grade so that you would have a chance of getting a better job. How much more so should you be reading the Bible? Well, I think part of the reason that argument doesn't work in an American context is because people study anthropology in order to get a job and make money, and they go to church in order to be either comforted or entertained or affirmed in some way. And I think the mentality of wisdom goes against the grain of both of those perspectives. You seek wisdom for the sake of the life of the community, for, as Paul would say, the common good. So if you are scriptural, you study anthropology because you want to increase your knowledge so that you can in some way serve the common good in the name of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if you are scriptural, you do not seek to be comforted, affirmed, or consoled, or entertained in any way, which negates the reason most people approach church in Western culture in the first place. We approach a religious community of any sort if we are scriptural, in order to read scripture and fellowship with others so that in teaching we may grow as students and as students we may grow in the gospel. That is the purpose of gathering as community. And all you need for that is $5, as I tell people, and someone to drop you off at Barnes & Noble so you can pick up a copy of the Bible. And then you could gather in fellowship at Barnes & Noble. And this, of course, assumes that they don't have phones or tablets or something like that where they can get it for absolutely free. Well, their parents have to shell out 700 bucks for an iPhone. I'm just saying, if you don't have an iPhone, you don't need one. Just buy a copy of the Bible. It's still available in print. Last time I checked. But in any case, I think the bottom line is it's about one's attitude, orientation, and priorities. If your priority is God and to serve God, there's only one way to do it, and it lies between the covers of that book that you hold in your hand. Right, and I tell the students, where are your priorities when you're more willing to read the anthropology textbook than to read the Bible? So when I have a classroom, I'm much more able to spend a lot more time having the kids read more texts, the college students, than when I'm with the OCF. When I was teaching high school students previously, I made them do homework because there is work that needs to be done and it should be no less than the work you're doing in school. So one of the things that I always say is you need to acquire the skill of learning to read the Bible because the skill of reading the Bible does take development. 
you're not supposed to understand the Bible on the first time. That's why we have a podcast and we already have 37 episodes and we've even done more than one episode on the same text because we even don't understand on the first go through. Every time we read, we understand more and more. Well, that's also why memorization is so important because prior to gaining any level of understanding, it ensures that the data is readily accessible in your mind. Because the other thing about scripture is that scripture, unlike Hellenistic philosophy, which is anti-scriptural, scripture deals with everyday life. And if you're not memorizing it and reciting it and reading it every day, you will not view everyday life through the perspective of those texts. You will not refer back to those texts when you see something in everyday life. It gets tiring the extent to which people insist that our young adults and our college students are either not smart enough to do this, not engaged enough to do this, and they peddle all of this other stuff that's at best irrelevant and at worst reinforces the very kind of self-righteousness that Scripture has given to undermine. So talk about Hosea 6 in that So, regard. So what I did is I said, okay, we're going to do Hosea 6. Everyone got in small groups of four. I say, just read it and try to understand what's going on. Talk to each other, try to understand it, and then we'll come back and we'll try to understand. And then I led a discussion to see how people approached understanding it so that then the groups are able to teach each other within me ultimately helping to guide the discussion in a way that would be most fruitful. But part of what I wanted them to see was what can happen when you get a group of people together to try to understand what scripture is saying. And lo and behold, these students were able to come up with good, interesting understanding of what scripture was doing. Right off the bat, it was interesting because they said, well, the first thing we did was we broke it up into three sections. Either they were very clever or they were building off the model that I had talked about what I had done with Paul when I was younger. But they already used this technique. Aha, chapter six is going to be too hard to understand in one go. We're going to chunk it up into in smaller bites and we can understand it. And then they started to see there are themes in each of these sections. The first section in chapter six is this penitential statement by the people. And then in the second section, they were noticing all of a sudden things turn bad. Well, what's going bad? And so then they had to ask the question, well, if the first one is so positive sounding and the second one is so negative sounding, what happened? The beauty of chapter six of Hosea is that the people are very committed to repentance and that this is the way we're going to do things. And then in verse four of chapter six, the Lord says, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud and as the early dew it goeth away. Your dedication will last as long as the dawn. And as soon as the sun comes up, it's going to dry up just like the dew. If you're focusing on the text, you can bring in things that will help make it relevant, but you can't make the relevancy the topic. Correct. So I said, okay, seniors, tell the freshmen what happens the first week of every semester. What are the things that you're going to do differently this time? And they all started saying, time management, (laughs) studying early, keeping up on your readings, going to bed earlier. And I said, yes. Now, interestingly, you admit that this is what you say at the beginning of every semester, correct? And they smiled and they said, yes. And so I said, for your time management is as a morning cloud and your dedication to going to bed early goeth away. And I said, now you see, this is what repentance looks like in the Lord's eyes. And I would hasten to add, since we know that you are not going to manage your time correctly, 
And we know that you are not going to go to bed early. Keep a copy of scripture with you. And instead of watching Netflix with your friends, read a chapter of Hosea every night. Exactly. exactly. It's not impossible. The only reason that our college students shortchange their own faith is because we set the bar so low. Right, exactly. Another thing that was really interesting, you know, in listening to the conversations they were having, one group commented on this verse, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. This person said, it sounds like he's saying, don't practice what you preach. Well, that's interesting because what this person is communicating is there's a tension between what people normally say and what we normally think is correct with what scripture is saying. And if this is what you gain by studying scripture, then you're starting to doubt what you hear people say and start to see it through the lens of scripture. And if this is what you learn, then you're on the right track. But listen, it took literally 10 minutes of a group of four college students who know barely anything about scripture, barely literate, and they start to see the difference. Now imagine if someone gave a thematic talk on Hosea and said, okay, we're gonna talk about this verse, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you take that verse out of context, in other words, you don't force the students to work through the entire text, you end up with a lecture about how this doesn't invalidate Orthodox liturgy. You end up with a lecture that takes this verse and twists it in order to justify something completely external to the reading. Whereas this young man was left with the tension that the Lord's prophet wanted to leave him with, that there is dissonance, that there is a problem with our incense in the nostrils of God when we are not doing the works of the law according to his instruction. What also came out is once we came into a bigger group, there was a discussion, what exactly does this mean by sacrifice in this section? Because in English, sacrifice can have multiple meanings because sacrifice can be something you do in a cultic sense, but sacrifice is also something that you give up for the sake of somebody else. However, in Hebrew, it's only the first. So they are already understanding the text and understanding, wait a second, what does sacrifice mean here? This is why it's good that I'm there, that I can help out. So someone say, well, what if you didn't have a PhD in Bible and in Hebrew right there in the room? Well, then go get one. I mean, come on. That's such a cop out. <laughs> but but, but what, what, what are we going to do if we don't have enough doctors? Go to medical school. You started by taking out a notebook. I think part of it, too, is this irrational fear of being wrong in some dogmatic sense. It doesn't matter what conclusions you draw. Just become familiar with the data. Right. If you spend time with the data, it doesn't matter if the conclusions you draw are wrong. You just keep working and you keep working. Then you can begin to dialogue with others. Because even a PhD can't help you if you're not dealing with the primary material. Right. I get very passionate about this because people find all these ways to let themselves off the hook of the fundamental demand of God that we listen to his text every day and walk according to its instruction. Right. And another, probably a final point on this, you know, in this chapter talking about the whoredom of Ephraim. And in previous years, I talked about Hosea 1 and 2, talking about the image of Israel as the wife of the Lord who then goes astray and makes herself a prostitute. And there are some people who are there who hadn't heard my previous lecture. So I just kind of off the cuff saying, well, it's like their husband and wife, but she decides to go become a prostitute. But she's such a dumb prostitute that she pays her johns in order to let them have their way with her. The Bible tells us so. Right, exactly. That's right there in the Bible. And to see the look, see the crinkled faces when I said that and the furrowed brows when I said that, this is also good. Exactly. Because this is a disturbing image. 
The text is trying to disturb us with this image. If you don't feel icky when you hear about that, you're not listening. If you explain it away so it's less icky, you're, you're not you're, listening. You're taking away, you're preventing others from hearing the text. You are imposing, as Paul would say, Thoran, right? You're imposing perishable things when you do that. You are supplanting the word of God with human words. You are filtering scripture. You're making something that is intended to be difficult, something nice and smooth and easy. I mean, kids are of age very quickly, much younger than college, and have the right to be challenged with the bread of life. Mm -hmm. I'm zealous on this point because I am troubled by the general lack of respect we have for the intelligence of our young adults. Our biggest concern is why didn't they go to church Sunday? Our concern should be the work that they need to be doing for the sake of others, for the common good, for the life of the world. We have lost this zeal. We think now just about how we can keep them in our group so that they can pay taxes and keep our lights on. One time I had a student who complained that they were learning nothing in my class because all I would do is tell them to read and then we just talk about it and I wasn't telling them what it was saying. And I said, well, if you feel that you're not learning enough, you're evidently not spending enough time at the library where we have more books. Correct. There's always more work to be done. And if we feel that it's too hard, it's because we're not applying ourselves. Is scripture difficult? Yes. Is scripture impossible? No. And this is the entire difference. If I can see an 18-year-old give an analysis of Hosea 6, and Hosea 6 is not an easy chapter. It's not one of the easy ones. It's not narrative. It's poetic. It's prophetic. And it's scandalous. And they get something out of it. Did they get everything out of it? No. Did they get everything correctly out of it? No. But without going through these initial stages, they won't understand it. You can't say if they're not walking correctly, then they should just stay on the floor and keep crawling. It makes no sense. No, and in fact, this whole obsession with being correct, again, undermines the biblical tradition. Whether you're a beginner or you're an advanced student of the Bible, sin for you is still unavoidable and pervasive in a part of your life. And the way scripture works, it uses your sin for its purposes. So even if you're struggling with scripture and making mistakes in your understanding and making mistakes in how you are acting out what you think you understand and so forth and so on, it doesn't matter because if you keep at it over time, the Bible will use your sins to transform you into a more correct person who behaves correctly. Scripture is not erasing sin. It is coaching people how to love. And sin serves a purpose, as Paul says, in this regard. It doesn't excuse you of your sin, because if it were to excuse you, then you would be off the hook and you would be self-content and self-righteous. So none of this is possible if you are not putting yourself daily under the gospel. That is the daily bread of which Jesus speaks. Right. We study it on our own to have context, but working also in a group is something important. People talk about sola scriptura and Protestant approaches versus Orthodox approaches and et cetera, et cetera. Sola scriptura is not sola scriptura because if you're really serious about just dealing with scripture, how can you say that the addressee of scripture has a direct line to Jesus Christ? It's impossible. You don't even have a direct line to Timothy in Paul's letters, let alone Paul let alone Jesus Christ, let alone God the Father. Which means the minute you say we're sola scriptura, you have a direct line, you're not sola scriptura. How can you say sola scriptura, but then try to convince everyone that James should not have been included in the canon? It's frustrating. It's Mm -hmm. frustrating because people talk this way because it's an easy way to get themselves out from under the pressure of scripture. If the priest 
or a teacher is saying in the churches, you have to read scripture, and you say, oh, that's sola scriptura, you're off the hook, but you don't know what you're talking about. You don't even know what sola scriptura is. Read scripture. Whenever you read, you have to be humble and ready to be corrected. It's important to understand scripture, but then go to someone who knows more than you to be taught by them. There's always those people around. You can always find those people who know more about scripture than you. But talk about a text. Don't talk about something about a text. Talk about the text itself. Open the Bible and say, what is this? When the Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house, I have no problem with it because they come and they say, well, you know, there's this, this, and this, and these are truths, blah, blah, blah. And I say, are they? Let's open the Bible. Let me get my Bible. And I get it in Greek, and we open it up, and we start talking about what is the Scripture saying. And then we are able to interpret because we have the text in front of us, and that is our concern. I am not speaking as an Orthodox. They're not speaking as Jehovah's Witnesses. We're simply readers of the Bible. Don't try to classify people who read Scripture as this, which is what people do in OCFs. They classify this group this way, this group that way, this group that way, so we know what we aren't, and we know what we are, and we're all set now. I mean, if this is what the faith is, it's a joke. And I'll tell you that what you see is that a group of OCF students who spend an hour reading and discussing Scripture come out with something substantial every time because they have knowledge of Scripture that they didn't have before. Plus, they came out with a better skill of reading a, actually a difficult text, and they developed that skill, and they did it with their colleagues. I'll tell you what, if those people had spent a year beforehand and were filled with completely wrong ideas about what Scripture was saying, text by text, misinterpreted every single verse, if they had misunderstood it because they had read each one and had done their best, as opposed to misunderstand them because they heard something about Scripture and did that instead of reading it, I would have much more to work with. I would be happy if everybody read Scripture and misunderstood it. They would already be more wise than people who were fed an interpretation of Scripture. Exactly. You are already more wise because you are dealing directly with the bread from the mouth of God the Father, as opposed to the words of human beings which are temporary and, as we hear in the Psalter, full of lies. To be more specific, every man is a liar, we hear in the good book. So why would you take the words of men on faith when you have the opportunity to deal with God's bread? Anyways, thanks so much, Dr. Benton. I wish I could have been there. I'm sure it was a great session, and uh, hopefully you get a chance to go back again later this year. It was a wonderful session. I look forward to being able to go back when I get a chance. Back to college or back to OCF? <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there. <laughs> take care. All right, bye-bye. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.